You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Uri Gnizzi, who is at the Business School at University of California, San Diego, and is also the author of uh, a couple books, most recently a book called Mixed Signals, and earlier uh, co-author of a book called The Y-Axis, along with John List. Welcome, Uri. Thank you. Great to be here. So I was reading Mixed Signals, and the book is about signals, but really it's about incentives. And in the business school, we have this split between the organizational behavior folks and then the economists. And whenever there's a debate, and usually it's about what's wrong with the university, half the people in the room say that it's all about the culture and the other half say it's all about the incentives. And I think what you're trying to argue is that it's all about incentives. It's just that we have to think about incentives more more broadly. And so when people talk about extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, they talk about it as if these are different disciplines where the extrinsic motivations, that's the province of the economists and the intrinsic motivation, that's for the psychologists and the sociologists and the organizational behavior folks. And you even talk about how, right, when Gary Becker started doing his work 40 years ago, the economists were wondering why he was dabbling with psychology and sociology. So are you advocating kind of a unified field theory of incentives that we should be thinking about these in a more integrated way? What you described is really funny. You go, you can take two classes at the business school, both called incentives, and each one of them will be the exact 180 from the other. So you ask psychologists, organizational psychologists, why we go to work? Well, it's for fulfillment because it makes us feel good. It, you ask economists why? Well, you have to pay the rent. That's it. And of course, both strawmen are just ridiculous, right? They're strawmen. That's what they are. And the reality is that we go to work because some people just go to work because they have to pay the rent. Some people go to work just because... Most of us go to work for both reasons. That's our life. That's a major part of our life. We want to do well in our work. We want to enjoy it. And we need to pay the rent. The question is how you combine the two. So if you just read the psychology, you see, well, if you pay people, if you give people incentives on top of their salary, that's going to crowd out their intrinsic motivation, their enjoyment, and it will destroy everything. And I think that the right approach is actually to combine these two. How can you pay and use this, the incentives in order to make people actually happier in their work? And that's all. it all goes through the signals that the incentive said. What is it that I'm expecting you to do? Because I go to work, you go to work. We don't really know what it is that will make us great people. So imagine that the dean decides to try and encourage us to do research and say that my dean would tell me, you know what, for every paper you publish, I'll pay you X dollars. I will get from these two things. First of all, that she cares about research. Second, that I should publish as many papers as possible. As a result, I'll publish lots of papers. They won't be good because my understanding would be that I'm expected to write many papers, not necessarily good paper. If the dean would say, well, I'll pay you for, here's a list of top five journals that I want you to publish and I'll pay you... 10x for publishing over there, then I will not try to publish many papers. I'll try to publish only in these. And the point is that I'll do it for the money, of course. The money is important, but also because now that's what I think that is the right thing to do. And that's what's the book about. How the incentive send you a message about what is it that you expect to do? Why are you doing it? And that, if it's aligned with the message that 
your boss, my dean, uh, whatever wants to send, then it's a good incentive. Otherwise, it might go wrong. Now, look, I think the article for which you're maybe most famous, or at least for which I've seen the most references, is the study you did on daycare. And when the daycares started charging money for late pickups, the late pickups went up, right? Which means that the curve is going in the opposite direction from what economists would predict. And I think the way that this is typically used in the academic setting is to argue that intrinsic and extrinsic motivations are substitutes for one another. But I think your point is much more subtle, that they can be substitutes or they can be complements, depending on the context. You also argue that we can't just take a strictly behavioralist approach where we just say what works. So even though you say that incentives are really whatever works, you argue that if you have an underlying theory or an underlying understanding of what's going on inside the black box of the decision maker, you're much more likely to come up with good incentives. So what's the relationship between theory and empiricism here? So first of all, incentive work. There is no question about that. We are all motivated by incentives. And if you don't see this, then I think you're very naive. The point is that economists look at incentive in a very naive way, right? Why? Because we build some kind of a mathematical model in which it's very easy to use incentives as one number that we all know what it is. Anyone who did empirical work or tried to run experiments knows that it's very complicated to really understand what people will do. So when people design experiments, they make two mistakes. The first mistake is not thinking at all about the signal that they send. And that should be easy. That's, uh, you can read the book and learn how to do it. That's an easy way. Just think about what is it that you signal by doing this? Are you telling your kids that they should read only because you pay them? Or are you able to convince them to enjoy reading and do you go to the gym because you're paid or because it's good for you and so on. So just thinking about it is already a huge step. And the second point is that in many cases, like I started by saying, I'm not really good at predicting what the incentives will do and mm -hmm. just test it, just go out. And that's, you mentioned the y-axis. That's what John and I talked about in that book. I should just go and think about A-B testing, choose, do it this way, do it the other way and find which one works. Uh, many people, I talk with companies and they tell me, oh, we tried incentives and they didn't work. And my analogy, the, my favorite analogy to this is imagine that you go to a Japanese restaurant, to a bad Japanese restaurant, and your conclusion is Japanese food sucks. Mm -hmm. That's, of course, not the right conclusion. The right conclusion is that you made a poor choice of a restaurant. Same is true for incentive. You tried it. It didn't work. Okay, so try to understand why it didn't work and how you can do it better in the future. That's the right approach. In economics, we have this view that prices are signals, right? This goes all the way back to Adam Smith. And of course, Hayek articulated this, that when something is more expensive, it's basically telling you don't do this. If you get paid for something, it's basically telling you do this. And this is why economists when they look at something like global warming, they say, well, look, all we need to do is do like a carbon tax, right? And we're done. And we're puzzled by all this obsession about people feeling bad about, you know, we're trying to use moral suasion and so forth. But sometimes this signal can backfire. And by raising the price of something or raising the reward that you give to someone for something, it makes it impossible for you to engage in the moral action, right? Carbon tax is an amazing example of how economists are puzzled by the world. So economists found a solution to everything. 
And the feeling is that all we need to do is to explain it to normal people and they will understand and the world will live as one from there mm-hmm. on. And it, of course, misses the moral aspects that people care about, even if economists think that or assume that we shouldn't. In the book, I talk about an example with a smaller scale example, but I think it's a good illustration. So at some point, the CEO of Coca-Cola found out that they can put a thermometer in the vending machine. And he probably took an economics econ 101 class and he thought oh let's do what economists call price discrimination we'll charge you more when it's hot outside than when it's cold outside because you're willing to pay more nothing wrong with this if you look at airlines hotels they all use this kind of dynamic pricing that's fine so his solution was on a regular day the cost will be one dollar on a hot day it will be dollar fifty surprise surprise people were really upset with him for being greedy and taking advantage of them when they need it. That's really disgusting behavior. What he should have done was is just the opposite. The regular price is $1.50. On a cold day, you get a discount and it's $1. You write down the math, it's exactly the same. Cold mm-hmm. day, dollar. Hot day, $1.50. Exactly the same. In one case, you annoy everyone by putting a surcharge. On the other case, you give a discount when it's cold and you're a hero. You're a nice person. And that could have been something, you know, if economists would have really understood this, maybe you could have found a way to put carbon tax in a more sensible way, because the environmentalists are all for it, if you think about it. Carbon tax, Mm -hmm. that's what you want to have. But the way they see it, and rightly so, that's the way I see it, it's some kind of, I allow you to pollute. If you have enough money, I'll let you pollute. That's Mm -hmm. not exactly what we're saying. What economists are trying to say is, if you're polluting, you're going to have to pay for it. And the more you're willing to pay for it, the more probably the more you need it. So you should use it. And the framing of it is really, I think that economists need a good PR person. I think it was in 1973 or four where government banned credit card surcharges on the sale of gasoline. And so all the gas stations switched to cash discounts. And everybody was fine with that. Exactly, um, exactly, exactly. And I think we had the head of pricing for Uber come and visit us here at Berkeley. And this is right when they were still using surge pricing. And they very quickly abandoned the idea of surge pricing, although I think the CEO couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. They're still using it. I think they just don't call it surge pricing. They have, I think that they have the price is higher than usual or something like that. Yeah, right. yeah, but it's a little more subtle. It doesn't stare you in the face. But you also had this great example of the Priuses and why the Prius was so successful. And what I think most people don't realize, and I was talking about this in class just last night, most people don't realize that Honda and other companies came out with similar cars at the same time that were profoundly unsuccessful. So Prius was so successful that you don't really know who the other one. In the late 90s, both Honda and Toyota came with the first commercial hybrid car for um, Honda. It was the Insight. You can still see them from time to time. Those were a really bad car, but so was the Prius at the time. So Prius, both hybrid cars were bad in the sense that they were, for the same price, you could have had a much better car at the time or pay less to get the same quality of car. Now it's not like that. Now the Prius is a very competitive car, but back then... They were bad cars. And surprisingly, having a bad car was a good signal. Why? Because if you drove it, I knew that you really care about the environment. Yeah. If you drive Tesla today, it's, maybe it's because you care about the environment, maybe because of the performance, because it's comfortable, because whatever, right? It's not just the environment. The signal is not that clear. Back then, because the car was bad, it was a very strong signal that you care about the environment. So surprisingly, having a bad car was not so bad for sales because there is a fraction. There are people that will drive the big SUVs and you want, they don't care. They don't want to be uh, Prius mm-hmm. drivers. 
Actually, for Prius, you could see I, I have in the book a picture of a cool Prius, a sticker on a Prius, and below it says nobody, right? right. It's, uh, nobody thinks that it's cool, and that's what they're looking for in a sense, right? So that's what, at least back then, that's what people were looking for. I'm not cool. I drive Prius. I care about the environment. A lot of the marketing is really about marketing signals, right? It's exactly. selling things. And so independent of the characteristics of the product, you need to also provide some capacity for the consumer to, to signal either social signaling or self-signaling, right? Exactly. So that's, in this case, it's more of the social signaling which, which helped Toyota. So in the early 2000s, both Toyota and Honda redesigned the car. And Honda listened to the engineer and built the car based on the Civic. And that gives lots of engineering benefits. You don't have to redesign stuff. You can, many of the parts are the same. It's much easier. And Toyota took a very different approach. They designed a completely different car that looks completely different, the Prius. And actually, that's what won them the market. According to Honda's CEO, that's why they lost. And the reason is that you're really good person, you care about the environment, but no one knows about it because you drive in with the Honda Civic with a small plank on the back. No one knows that you're a good guy. On the other hand, if you drove Prius, everyone knew that's a good guy. Here go, Gregory is a good guy. He drives Prius, he cares about the environment. So this signaling to others was so important that it really won Toyota the market just by a small, a small decision of redesigning the car. Well, you talk about some other examples. You referenced this dichotomy between top knots and tattoos, where a top knot is a relatively, well, it's not just that it's cheap, it's that it's reversible, whereas a tattoo right. is pretty much for life, right? Right. So I started thinking about it when I went to my accountant a few years ago. He's a nice guy. I, I'm always late, so I arrive in early April and he's swamped with work and basically it's not nice. And then I saw on the wall some pictures of him on his Harley. And ask him how he survived this time. He says, well, you know, I have made to wrap up things. And then in June, I go out with my buddies to ride my bike. Now, he's, he's an accountant. You can see that he's an accountant. And the point is that in order to be part of the bike culture, you really need to be, to send some uh, credible signals. And my accountant is a nice guy. Him and his buddy have the money. They buy the right bike, the right leather jackets, whatever, all the accessories that you need. But still, when they enter the bar, you know that they are not the real thing. Now, if you really want to have a credible signal, that's who you are, that that's your culture, you can do this. A neck tattoo is the best thing to do, right? If you have a face uh, some, tattoo. some big neck, a face tattoo, perfect, right? No one can tell you that you are not the real deal. You are the real deal. Now, my guy will not do that because he'll have to come back to the office mm -hmm. a few weeks later and his boss will not like it. I would not, I don't know if I would have trusted uh, an accountant with a face tattoo. As they become more common, they lose their capacity to signal, though, right? Kind absolutely, absolutely. So when I grew up, only sailors and prisoners basically had tattoo. Now my daughter is covered with tattoo and all her friends are, right? So it's, the world has changed. The world has moved on. Still, I think that my guess is that it would have been harder for you to get a job as an accountant with face tattoo. So that's why the signal is so credible, right? So that's, the point is that signals need to be credible. I can go and say I care about the environment but then drive a, an SUV, that's not, uh, no one will believe me. If I say I care about the environment, then I go spend lots of money on a bad car, bad hybrid car, that's a signal that I really care about the environment. So the signal has to be credible in a sense, that I'm really willing to spend money, I'm really willing to mark my face or whatever it is. 
Well, I'm sure there'll be a whole bunch of papers coming out soon that will study the use of masks as signals or lack thereof over the last couple of years. It's hard to understand the masking behavior without also understanding kind of the signaling element of it, right? Right. So my friend drove during the, I think it was summer 2020 from the south. He had a road trip because he needed to come here. And he said that in one of the gas stations in the south, when he entered with a mask, they told him that they don't serve people with masks. So it is a signal, right? It is a signal about what you're worried about and what Mm -hmm. you care about. And I agree that it's interesting. You are signaling who you are. In the book, you recount a whole bunch of examples of perverse incentives. Now, I think every economist has a collection of these stories, and you recount a whole bunch of them. And I think they all illustrate some of the conflicts that you talk about in the book, rather it is the conflict between short-term and long-term, between individual and collective objectives. And I was wondering if you could recount some of them, because when you hear these examples, sometimes you wonder when you read about them, you're like, who was thinking through this incentive scheme Why did they come up with this when it seems kind of obvious that it's going to run into some problems? Right. So I really like collecting cases in which incentives don't work. So I'll get to the examples that you talk about. So if you look at, I call it stakes and mistakes, places where incentive didn't work. So for example, I like to go to Puglia. It's in the southeast Italy. And over there, they have a very unique structure called Truly. It's kind of a pyramid shape. And you have it only over there. Turns out that Something unique about it is that you can take it down and rebuild it within hours. Not you and I, Mm -hmm. probably, but people who know what they're doing can do it within hours. Why did it happen? Hundreds of years ago, the tax collector from Napoli used to come over, and they would tax places with roof because that was considered a house and didn't tax structures that didn't have a roof. So whenever the word was spread that the tax collector is coming, everyone took off the roof, dismantled the roof, The tax collector left, they rebuilt it, right? And there are many, many examples like this. Window tax. So at some point in England and many other places in Europe, they wanted to tax the rich and they found a way. The more windows you have in your house, the richer you are, so we're going to tax you more. So until today, if you go in Europe, there are many places where you'll see windows that are blocked. So originally Mm -hmm. they were built with glass and then with a window and then they were blocked and things like that, right? So people do react to incentives, not always the way you want. And now to your question about things. So think about quantity versus quality, like I mentioned with my dean and the publications, right? Do I need to publish lots of papers or do I need to publish good papers? And in many cases, it's much easier to measure the quantity than the quality. So if you are working in a line producing shirts, I can count very easily how many shirts you did. How good you stitch them, that's going to be harder to measure and so on. So very often people incentivize the quantity instead of the quality they mention. And economists called it multitasking. Turns out that in such situations, what you'll get is exactly what you pay for. You pay for quantity, you'll get quantity, but the quality is going to go down. And it's not just me publishing papers or t-shirts. Think about our health system. Most of our health system is built on fee-for-service, which means that you go to your doctor, the more he or she prescribes to you, the more tests, the more hospitalization, the more surgeries, the more they are paid. That's a really bad system. So there are examples about C-sections that uh, you look at hospitals that compensate the doctors per C-section or not. So the hospital do it because they get much higher reimbursement from the insurance company. That's why they give the doctors this. 
If you compensate the doctors for C-section, you see that there are many more C-sections. C-section is important when it's needed, but it's bad when it's not. And that's what they do. You look at back uh, surgeries, same story. Back surgeries are needed sometimes. Too often they're done simply because the doctor needs to replace their BMW. So that's the quantity versus quality is a really important thing. Don't just incentivize quantity because people are just going to produce more. The quality will go down. You and I both teach courses on organizational design and incentives and so forth. And, and so I guess the big question I have when you see these things and you see them over and over again, does it make sense to think of them just as second bests, right? If you were to incorporate the cost of measurement and the cost of incentive design, that this is really like the best you can do. Or do you think that people underinvest in really thinking through these incentive schemes? You were describing in the book these football teams in Europe that will incentivize scoring goals. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to see what's going to happen. If you reward a wide receiver for touchdowns but not for blocking, they're going to behave in a way that they're going to respond to the incentives. So is it just that people don't have a way of designing a complex incentive scheme that say balances quantity and quality or is it they just lack effort they don't put the effort into it i think that it's a combination of the two so example of the sports team right the team clearly wants to win they don't really care who scores the goal or who does the touchdown but choose your sport but if you just incentivize team effort you wouldn't get the tom brady or messi of the world to play for you because You want the best players, the best athletes to come over and be with you. And they don't want the team incentive. They want the individual incentive. The question, the balance is, how do you make it such that they will get their individual but will still care about the team? And I think that in sports, sports is a good example where people do think about that. But there is a competition and they have to fight with each other. So it's not just, uh, it's in a Optimal world, I would have my team and I would incentivize my players and everything will be good. Problem is that if I'll do it this way, another team can come and say, you know what? Steve, come over. I'll pay you double what Uri is paying you. And that's it. Mm -hmm. I lost him. So it's not, I live in a strategic world in which it's not just how much I pay you, but also what you think. But in general, you shouldn't just tell people, look, I expect you to work as a team. I expect you to care about the cooperating and then pay them according to individual success. So think about mentoring. You have a new person coming to work for you. You want that person to be successful, someone needs to mentor that person. Mm -hmm. But usually mentoring someone is not rewarded. If you look at incentive scheme, you don't reward people for mentoring. It's very hard to reward people for mentoring. It's easier to reward people, say, for sales. That's a very easy measure. That's exactly what you said, that we just tend to go to the easier end. So no one is mentoring the new salesperson, say, and it takes that person a long time and you lose lots of business because they were not trained well. So that's something that if you are preaching that you should mentor, you should be a team player, you should try and find incentives that actually support that. If we look at marketing, the amount of complexity that goes into various pricing schemes and the complexity that goes into different advertising campaigns, we don't tend to see that matched inside the organization when we look at how they interact with employees. And I was talking to someone on my podcast who suggested that every company have like a chief incentive officer. And I thought this was an interesting idea, right? Because before you enter into a procurement contract, you always want to have your lawyer think about all the things that could go wrong and make sure that they're covered in the contract. But when we enter into an employment relationship, we don't always think through all the things that could go wrong 
as a function of a contract. We just hope that culture solves it or something like that. Should HR departments be, do they need to be more sophisticated and think more like the marketing folks? I definitely think so. And I think that you touched an important point, which relates to the Japanese restaurant analogy that I made before. There is this thinking that incentive is one thing. We'll give you, we'll design incentives and mm-hmm. we'll give you more money and that will work, right? It's not so simple. It's not that complicated, right? Getting people to walk on the moon is harder, but still you need to understand what you're doing. And I think that there are few functions, if you would have asked me what are the functions that you should add to companies, to boards, definitely one about incentive. The first one would be a common sense officer. Chief common sense officer. I love it. Exactly, exactly. So that's just, look, that's stupid what you're doing. The Coca-Cola example is a good example. Look, people are going to hate you for doing this, don't. And the second one is about incentives, absolutely, to understand that it's more than that. Now, most of the HR people that I talk with come from the psych background, so organizational Mm -hmm. psychology and alike, and they really view the people are coming for fulfillment story that I said before, Mm -hmm. which is true, but it's only part of the picture. And very often they don't understand the competitive. Now, they're not naive. They know what they're doing very, very well in many cases. But I think that another dimension, someone that will actually tell them, look, you can pay that person this way or you can pay that way. And you're going to send a very different message to, as to what you're doing and why you're doing this. And you should be careful about it. An example that I talk about in the book is the pay to quit. So the idea is very simple. I teach a negotiation class here at business school. And I tell my students that they shouldn't lie. Lying is bad for ethical reasons, it's bad for reputational reasons, don't lie. The only place where you should lie is when you are in a job interview and someone asks you about how excited you are. You need to show excitement about your job. If you're not excited, so we are talking now, if I wouldn't be excited about my book, why would the listeners be excited about my book? There is no, if I'm not excited working for you, why would you want me to work for you? So be excited about this, right? Now, because of that, I think that many people understand this. So if you ask someone, are you happy to work here? Do you want to live? They'll say, no, I'm good here, even if they're not. So how can you really select the ones that that really want to be over there and work for you? Offer them $20,000 to quit. Tell them, look, Gregor, I want you to stay. I love you. You're a good worker. However, if you want to go, we'll give you $20,000 and we'll Mm -hmm. depart as friends. Now, some people will take it. And that's actually not bad for you because those people were already marginally willing to go and the selection process is going to be good. They'll go, everything will be fine. The people that will stay will be people that actually want to be here. They're not faking the excitement. They're really excited about working for you. Plus, now they'll have to explain to themselves, to justify to themselves, why did I do it? Right? So you don't want to say, oh, I made a stupid decision by deciding to stay. So now you'll work harder in order to make it, make it a good thing, right? So that's an example where the intuition says, why would I give $20,000 to people to leave? If they're leaving, just kick them in the butt and mm-hmm. t- say goodbye. And what I'm saying is that you can use this as a, a way to select the better people and to motivate the people that choose to stay. Well, now, you didn't mention the the Tom Sawyer effect, but I think a lot of your work (laughs) implies a Tom Sawyer effect where you don't really know whether something is desirable or undesirable ex ante, right? You need a little help (laughs) in figuring it out. And so you can rely on these signals. I know people that they'll do everything they can to avoid doing work in the household and then they'll go to the gym and lift weights because they think of the former as work and they think of the latter as recreation. You talk about this with pricing where... 
if you charge a higher price for a bottle of wine, then, you know, it, it tastes better. Think about going to the gym, but using the elevator when you go instead of the stairs, yeah. because you don't like climbing the stairs. Yes, so we do talk about, when you think about some of the things that we do, one of them is the price equals quality, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know what's the value of this wine, but if you tell me that it costs $20, I think it's less good than if you tell me that it costs $50. So that's what we're doing. And I think that's an example of signal that I don't know. In many cases, when I go and do things, I don't know, should I be paid for it? Maybe shouldn't. Maybe I should pay for it. Maybe it's great. Yeah. So imagine a podcast, right? Come in here. Should I pay you for the PR? Or maybe you should pay me for joining your show. Right. Maybe no one is going to pay anyone. So, And I don't really know. And you can think about the way the incentives work. Imagine that every podcast would pay me $100,000. That would have been a great world to live in. But then I wouldn't go to ones that will, be, that will not pay me. Right. Because my association will be that you, you need to pay me in order to come to your podcast. Right, so I really construct the story, and much of the book is about how incentive construct help me to understand the world, to navigate the world. In many cases, I don't know whether I should be paid or maybe I should pay. In some cases, you know, if you want me to clean your house, you'll have to pay me. But in many other cases, like coming to the podcast, I don't know, should I pay? Should you pay me? No one should pay. What's the reason? If you would have paid me a lot of money, my understanding would be that I'm doing it for the money. And it's actually not a pleasant thing to do. I need to pay the rent, like we said, right? If I had to pay you, I would say, look, that's a really great way mm-hmm. to, for, to achieve PR. So the incentives help us to build the story why we're doing what we're doing. There was one guy I contacted about getting on the podcast and his publicist asked if there was any monetary compensation. And I said, well, at the moment, I'm not currently charging guests. <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer, and then, yes. And then, and they were very interested. But, I mean, I find it strange when I ask my colleagues if I organize a lot of classes and programs, and I'm always looking for speakers. And some of my colleagues, there is no amount of money that I can give them that'll get them to give me an hour of their time. You know, I'll offer them $2,500. bucks. they like, no, no, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. But, you know, sometimes when I ask them for free, they'll do it. And it's amazing what a mug can get you. I mean, like a Stanford mug or a Berkeley mug. Right. And I always wonder, like, why don't people... These are so cheap. I remember going to, I think it was a SJDM conference like 20 years ago, and someone presented a paper that showed the motivational impact of these non-pecuniary award-based compensations for workers and demonstrated that it was like much, much cheaper to give these awards than to give more money. And I was like, well, why don't we do more of that? I've been at Berkeley for 18 years. I've never gotten a free mug from the dean or anybody. We should do a mug exchange. I'll send you a UCSD <laughs> one. You'll send me a Berkeley one. Right? So I think you're touching into a few things. So first of all, most of your listeners would prefer to get $2,500 over a mug, right? So that's still the case. But for smaller cases, smaller awards, I think that it's really important. So think about blood donation. Many of us donate blood and we are not compensated for it. Now, if you offer me $50 to donate my blood, I would say, no, thank you. I don't want to donate blood. I don't want any business with mm-hmm. it. I'm not going because yeah. I change, you change the signal. Before that, I thought, look, I'm donating blood because I'm a good person. That's the self-signaling that you mentioned before. And now you're telling me, no, it's not because I'm a good guy. It's because I want $50. Well, for $50, I'm not going to spend two hours of my time and get needles yeah. stuck into me. Now, imagine that instead of that, you give me a mug with the blood bank logo on it. Now that's great because now I'll go to my office and every morning when I drink coffee, Mm. I'll think, oh, oh, you're a good guy. Look at this. You donated blood. And also when people will come to my office, I don't have to tell them, you know what? I'm a good person. I donated blood. I can just lift my coffee mug so they they will see. So the coffee mug that you mentioned, 
that cost $5 is definitely going to have a very different message than a $50 reward. So yeah. that's the that's what you said. So just to thank you, so imagine that you go and give a talk somewhere and they give you a $50 voucher. That's <laughs> insulting. You know, I spent a day traveling mm -hmm. and you give me a gift basket. That's nice with a T-shirt that I'll never wear, but that's nice. So that's the, I think that's absolutely right. That also connects with gifts, by the way. Mm -hmm. So the best, maybe the best in our profession, my, my absolute heroes are Seinfeld, right? So Larry David and <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld are the best and they got it all. So if you want, I can send my PhD to watch Seinfeld. They can come up with a research agenda. One of them was about gifts. So J Jerry and Elaine were romantically involved and then not. And now he needs to buy her a birthday gift. And he goes around and he thinks about this. No, this will seem you know, too much romantic. This is too whatever. At the end, he gives her a big box. She opens it and finds cash in it. And she screams at it, what are you, my uncle? And the point is that gifts are really signals of something, right? They're extremely inefficient. Imagine how much time and money is wasted on people going out before Christmas looking for gifts and trying to find something to, that will match. And then other people have to return it. Just give cash. And, but it signals what you think about the other person. And the signals, controlling the signals, that's basically what I'm trying to, that's my argument, that if you control the signal, if you understand that incentives send the signal and you control it, you can get a big advantage. This is all about the importance of awards, right, and medals. I think there was some general who said that people will risk death for a medal, right, and for the praise that comes along with an award. So when you're dishing out awards, presumably there's an optimal amount of rewards. I think you should reference a study where kids would do more for a $3 trophy than for a $20 bill. But if everyone gets a trophy, then presumably the impact goes away. So is there a science of optimal non-pecuniary award structure? I wrote a paper with Jana Gallus and Sandy Campbell in which we look at awards and we try to say it. So ex what you mentioned is a great dimension. If Imagine the Oscars. It's so important because they give it once a year. Imagine that they would give it once a week. Every Saturday night, you'll have the Oscar winning. No one would care about it. So the, that being rare is actually important. And there are other aspects. Who gives the award? Is it a bunch of people that I don't care about or a bunch of people that I really care about? So scarcity, who gives it? So think about the, sign, the signal that it sends. So if I, know that, if I know that you received the Nobel Prize in physics, I will not understand what you did. But I will have very strong appreciation for it. I mm -hmm. think, well, this guy must be really good at what he's doing, right? So the signals that you get, and that comes from the fact that they give only one a year or three a year, but to three people. But awards in the workplace could have a very strong meaning because that's where we started. I think I want to be good at my job. I don't always know what it means to be good at my job. And if you give me an award telling me the employee of the month or something like that, I know, okay, I, I did well and I'm happy about it. Yeah, and presumably also the legitimacy of the process by which the award was selected is, is critical. Right. If I can bribe myself into this, I'm not going to be happy about it, right? So if I know that I got it in an illegitimate way, that's going to be less fun than if I did. So imagine I want, to be a, I want the book to be bestseller. Right? So there are ways that I can try and yeah. buy myself uh, lots of books. If I had uh, lots of a lot of money, I could have bought myself lots of books and get higher on the ranking. But that will not send me the signal that I'm interested in. 
I really want to know that people were interested in buying the book. So that's the kind of thing that we are signaling to ourselves. And if we know that we received it, we got it because we did something for the person who decides, for the committee, that is not very ethical, I will feel less happy about the award than otherwise. Yeah, so I think one flaw in a lot of the advice that people get as to how to succeed, right? So a lot of that advice is here are all the tools and techniques you can use to achieve and to get to a senior position. You know, what that neglects is the self-signal, right? So if you achieve a promotion because you managed to persuade your boss to like you, right? then you don't quite feel as competent or as accomplished as you might if they gave you a promotion in spite of the fact that they didn't like you. You don't have to go to the extreme of not liking you, but yes, it's not because you partied until the middle of the night with your bosses every night and they like you as a drinking buddy, but because they Mm -hmm. think that you're a good researcher, attorney, taxi driver, whatever it is, that's why you got it. I think that's helpful. Now, a lot of the work that you did, both in the Y-axis and later, has to do with education, right? And trying to figure out how to get people to achieve more in the educational environment. And one of the results that I found interesting in the Mixed Signals book had to do with these PISA tests. And the PISA tests are meant to capture educational attainment, but they may be capturing more motivation. And I think there's been other work on SATs and other standardized tests that suggest that they're measuring less about underlying intelligence and more, whether it's persistence or grit and so forth. So I was wondering if you could talk about that and if success is predicted to a large extent by whether it's motivation or grit or persistence, how can we encourage that? How can we get that skill to become a habit? So the PISA test example is, I think, extreme of what is called low-stake tests. So it's done all over the world and basically the way it's done they pick some schools at random secretly at random and then they show up gather around the 15 year old kids make them sit in the class for three hours taking uh, math science and reading quizzes but before that they tell them look you'll never know how well you did on the test because we are not going to tell you your teachers will never know your principal will never know your parents will not no one will ever know some Guys in Brussels will get the aggregated result and will tell you how good the U.S. is compared with other places. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if you also have gray hair, so I don't know if you remember being 15. (laughs) You know, it was a long time for me, but I can still sympathize with my 15-year-old self. I would have told you, thank you very much. I'm not interested. So the point is that all these standardized tests assume that what you do is compare the ability of kids in the U.S.A. and China. So in Shanghai, they are ranked number one. In the U.S., we are ranked somewhere in the mid-30s. Why? So why? what are we doing bad? That's the question. And the answer is ability. Our ability in math is lower than the ability of the Chinese student. Now, what it neglects is to see that there are two components into this, the ability to solve math and your motivation to do it. Why, why would I do it? So what we did, we ran an experiment. We took kids from high schools, 15-year-old kids from high schools in the U.S. and in China, in Shanghai. And in the first case, we gave them 25 questions, asked them to answer. The kids in China did much better than the kids in the U.S., very much in line with the PISA test. Now we did something else. We told them, okay, here's $25.00. That's yours to keep. For every mistake that you make in the test, we're going to take away $1 from you. And now go and do it. And what we saw is that the Chinese kids didn't do better because they were already probably trying as as hard as they could before. They did very well, but 
not better than before. There is a limit. If I'll ask you, if I'll give you an SAT score, no matter how much I'll pay you, there is a limit to how much you can do. The kids in the U.S., on the other hand, had a huge improvement in their performance. And especially the kids, so not the lower kids, the lower level kids, because they just didn't understand what's going on, but the kids in the middle had a very big improvement. So those are the kids that, before that sat, looked at the questions, answered some of them, and moved on. Now they were motivated. We gave them the incentives and we motivated them. Now, we don't suggest paying people to do this. We just, what we're suggesting is that you need to understand the motives of the people. So it's not just the ability, it's also how much you want yeah. to do it. And to understand it is really crucial for your success. In the Y-axis, you talk about a lot of the experiments that you and John List ran in Chicago and other places. And I was wondering if you could talk about First of all, what are the big takeaways from those experiments? And then secondly, why haven't the insights from those experiments diffused more rapidly? I mean, these were experiments that were done 10 years ago. And I, and I understand the scaling issue, and I talked to John about the scaling issue, but nonetheless, there seem to be some insights that could improve the quality of education across the country. So I have very quiet life. You know, I'm a university professor. Nothing too exciting happens in my life. Apart from when I talk with educators about incentives, then I really get these nice people chasing me and wanting to kill me, right? They are really very much against using incentives. And I think that they're not completely wrong. In many cases in education, your goal is to convince kids to enjoy studying and not just to be successful. And you shouldn't bribe kids. And there are many good examples. For example, it's very easy to construct incentives to get you to read a certain book. It's much harder to get you to enjoy reading books. I don't know how to use incentives to make you enjoy it. And there are lots of problems in education that relates to this. Now, there are things, and I think that's what you related to, that it's once and done, right? So mm -hmm. imagine that you have kids in diapers and you want to convince them to stop using diapers. You can bribe them with candies. And... If it will work, they're not going to go back to diapers once you stop bribing them. So imagine me, I type like one finger at a time and I write books, right? So it's really inefficient. I lose a lot of time. If I would have sat for a week and learned how to do touch typing, I would have saved huge amounts of time. But I don't do that because, because I'm an idiot. But imagine that you would give me incentives to, to go to a touch typing class. I will not go after the week when you stop paying me, I will not go back to typing finger by finger. So I think that in education, if you want to get people to change the way they feel about studying, it's much harder. Mm -hmm. But if you want them to achieve something, so if you have a kid, a 17-year-old kid that all they want to do is to go out with their friends, but you want them to sit and do the SAT, that might be a good place to bribe them. Because it's the SAT is one very important event that they have in their life that you don't really need to teach them to enjoy passing the SAT or getting good grades on the SAT. You need them to get it. You need them to sit down, practice, do it, and that might be a good place to bribe them. Then when they go to college, you want them to actually enjoy studying. Otherwise, you're not there to control them. And even if you're there, you cannot control them. So it's really, I think that the distinction between crowding out that the educators are so worried about, and rightly so, and once and done kind of thing, that's an important one. So this is more like surgical interventions. If you think about trying to get somebody to 
whatever, take a vaccine, okay, and you reward them for taking the vaccine. I know there's signaling issues there, but still, that's a one-and-done thing, and you don't worry too much about crowding out subsequently. When you're training a dog, and there's a critical period where I used to use the choke collar and the little pellets, right? And you do the choke collar and the pellets, and you do that for about a month, and then you get 10 years of wonderful dog behavior after that, right? It's not like the dog says, all right, well, fine, I'm not going to do this unless I get my pellets. It's that the incentives get internalized, right? And so you talk about habit stock. And I guess the idea behind a habit stock is that once you're put on some trajectory, there's a momentum that takes over. If I want to acquire a habit, I'll force myself to wash the dishes. And then after I do it for a couple of weeks, it's like, ah, you know, I'm, I like it. I start liking it just because I do it. What have you learned about helping people to acquire these habits? So many of us had periods in our life in which we exercised a lot and periods in, my, in our life in which we sat on the couch and watched Netflix. And it's not clear why, but if you're on your couch now listening to this podcast, remember the times where you went to the gym, the periods in which you went to the gym, and you were actually happy with this, and you don't mm -hmm. understand why you can't reconstruct these times. And one of the reasons turns out to be that what you call the stock of behavior, that the first time you go to the gym after a long time, it smells bad. You don't really know where to park. You don't really know what to do. And imagine that I pay you to go to the gym for a month. So for a month, you do it for, because I pay you to do this. That's what we did in our experiments. After a month, you already think that the smell is not that bad. And mm -hmm. you, maybe you found a friend or two in the gym and it fits your schedule. You know how to do it, when to do it. You know everything about it. And then you say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go to the gym. So the idea is that the first time might be more costly than the benefit that you're getting. But after a month, you really enjoy to doing it. And incentives can help you get over this hurdle. If mm -hmm. I'll give you incentives, and you mentioned your friends that you invite them to your class and they don't come because of this, you can bribe anyone. Anyone has something that they want that that you can bribe them with, right? So if, if someone will come to you and tell you, you'll get a course off next year if you'll do X, that's something that you'll consider, right? Mm -hmm. So everyone has something that they consider. So bribe them for a month, give them incentive for a month, and after a month, stop, remove the incentive and see what happens. And what we found is that you get some kind of habit formation. After a month, people are more likely to keep going to the gym in this case. And by the way, it also has implication about incentivizing yourself to go to the gym because you can decide, okay, I'll commit. For, I'll go to the gym for a month without questioning myself. I'm not going to think in the morning, well, today I'm tired, today I had to wake up early, to, was busy at work, it's raining. No, I'm going to go to the gym for a month, and then I'll, only then I'm going to do the cost-benefit analysis. And then you might find out that it's actually less bad than it was before. In both your books and all of your research, I think you're advocating for more experimentalism in economics. And so economists used to be primarily theorists, and then there's a little bit of empirical added in, and now there's experimentation both in the lab and in the field. And in business schools, we tell all of our students that they should be using field experiments and A-B testing all of their ideas. And yet this still hasn't been adopted as widely as we would hope. You reference Intuit and how they've made it a central part of what they do. But there are plenty of companies and certainly plenty of governments and universities that don't do easy, cheap experimentation to test out their hypotheses. So like I can understand why people might be skeptical of different types of interventions, but why would they not want to test it? Do they overestimate the cost or is it just that they don't want to know? 
it's a combination of things. So first of all, people think that they know. Why do I need to test it? They know. Many of them think that they are paid to know. So I have an experiment in which we went to a winery over here and they asked me how much should they price their Cabernet. I don't know, but I can design a very simple experiment to let you know. If you work for a big consulting firm and you'll give this answer, they'll fire you. Right. So people don't want to admit that they don't know. But in many cases, they don't even know that they don't know. Like I said before, very often when I go to the lab or to the field and test something, I'm surprised by the results. And that's always great to know because mm -hmm. you, you learn something surprising. But being surprised is part of what we do and people don't understand it in many cases. And it's surprising because sometimes it's people, you know, think about engineers. They will not build the bridge without all the experiments that came before that. Or doctors, they will never give you a medicine that wasn't tested in a very rigor, what we call field experiment, right? So the mm -hmm. FDA will get it through a very, very rigorous process of testing it. And yet when they come to make decisions about business decisions, like incentives, they just follow their intuition. I don't want to go to a doctor that will follow their intuition and decide whether I need surgery or not. I want them to send me to tests. I want them to tell me the science behind it. And then at the end, intuition could be a, another small component over there. But I want it to be based on science. And that's not the feeling when people talk about business, which is kind of surprising. So when I talk about the transition to more data-driven decision-making from gut-level decision-making, a lot of people think that it's really a cultural thing. But I think to some degree, gut-level decision-making was the rational choice 50 years ago because experimentation was expensive, and so you had to use your gut. But experimentation now is just so much cheaper. So do you think there's just a lag, a failure of understanding that people don't realize how inexpensive it is or how, even at organizations, I mean, at my university, we sometimes phase in changes, but we phase them in ways that don't allow us to evaluate. Should every company have a chief experiment officer as well to kind of make sure that every change is done? And yeah, It's going to be busy over there, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, a lot of chief officers, right? Right, and right, even, right? And even when we do, even when we phase stuff in, we phase it without any view to understanding whether or not it worked or not. So the gut feeling and intuition that you mentioned is still extremely important. So think about big data, for example. So I talk with our business analytics students. Tell them what you want. They know how to cut the data and get you whatever you want. But you need someone that will ask the right questions. And that the gut feeling could be there, right? So it could be something useful in order to do this. So you need to understand maybe the theory, the psychology. You need to understand. You also need gut feeling. The problem is that today there is so much data that people think that it's all out there, but you don't know how to get the, the interesting answers because you have lots of people that know how to answer questions. You have very few people that know how to ask the questions. And asking the questions, you know, is this incentive better than this incentive? Maybe I can go to the data I already have, or maybe I need to run a small A-B testing. I can run it for a day like this for half of the people that will click and like this for the other half and see what happens. That's extremely simple. People, like you said, think that it's complicated and you need to know. That. No, it's very simple. It's just as simple as... Half of the clicks will get a dollar for doing this. Half of the click will get a mug for doing this. See which one is more effective. Make the mug, make it a dollar, five dollar or ten dollars and the mug. In many cases, like you said, maybe the mug that costs only two dollars will be more effective than the five dollar. Then it's good. In some cases, it won't be. So just test it. So use your gut feeling to, to guide you, but then test it. So do you think that experimentalism is something that will become increasingly important in economics? 
as well as all the other social sciences going forward? So I think that those are two, two separate questions. I think that in industry, the real world should do much more of it. And exactly like you said, if you're online, that's as simple as asking your guys to do this A-B testing for you. Just don't roll up things without testing them before. The academic world is more complicated. So in academia, for some reason, the more math you have, the higher is your social status in a sense. At least you're perceived, that's how you perceive yourself. You perceive yourself smarter. So in math, it's the people that do theory more than the applied math and more than the statistics that more than the... And in economics, it's the same. And probably because their IQ is much higher than mine, the people that do theory and use a lot of math, they control the field since basically Samuelson and the neoclassical economics after World War II. Economics used to be a really behavioral field up to then. Then they became... It had a very important and very useful um, effect on the profession. It became much more rigorous. We tried to find unified theories. It's really important. But at some point, people dived into this and started believing that's the Bible that, Mm -hmm. that we got. The Ten Commandments that we got are based on math. And it's not. It's based on people. When normal people ask me, what do you do? I say behavioral economics. They ask me what kind of economics is not behavioral. And they think that they're absolutely right. Everything, because at the end of the day, it's about people. So there is a tension between the theorists and the experimentalists in the profession, going back to the 70s when experiments started. If you look at the popularity among students, for example, clearly they care much more about behavioral economics than theory. But if you look at the top journals, it's still controlled by the people that do theory. So that's an ongoing exchange. I hope that, and I think that we are moving in the right direction, that it will be some kind of combination, that some people will find behavioral aspects and the other people will model these behavioral. So we'll walk away from the simplifying assumptions that were so useful at the beginning. So, for example, assuming that you're selfish, that you don't really care about other people. In some cases, in financial market, it might be good. If you talk about labor market, it's not so good because people do care about, I care about how much my colleague are earning. I'm overpaid. I get much more than I deserve. But if I'll be paid less than my colleague, who I think is less good than me, of course, I think that they're less good than me, because that's how we are. I'm going to be affected by this. So assuming that I don't care about how much my colleague earns, that's just a mistake. It's not a mistake. It's a simplifying assumption that in many cases doesn't work. And we need, I think, that the future of economics is try to be more of the two, so more using less of the simplifying assumptions and trying to understand more general aspects of behavioral. Well, Ori, thank you so much for joining me. This book is called Mixed Signals. It's really quite a bit of fun to read. <laughs> and so too was the Y-axis from back in the day. There's plenty more in there that we barely touched on and hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.